chapter 1. Pastor Oliver Jones, it is a joy to have you here at Trinity Bible Church this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 will be our study for this morning. In 1619, 38 English settlers arrived in Virginia. In the obedience to their charter documents, they held the first Thanksgiving on American soil, celebrating their ship's safe arrival, which, quote, shall be yearly and perpetually kept as a holy day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. <clears throat> Two years later, 1621, it was William Bradford in Massachusetts with his settlement of Calvinist separatists from England who celebrated with local tribes the goodness of God's provision and blessing. One eyewitness writing home about Thanksgiving celebration said, Yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. 168 years later, annual Thanksgivings for God's provision was so highly desired by the leadership of the United American Colonies that President George Washington made Thanksgiving the first nationwide celebration, marking November 26, 1789, as a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed and acknowledged by grateful hearts that many and signal favors of the Lord, Almighty God, were happening. Thanksgiving is part of your American talking about this morning is inheritance, and so I'm presenting this to you as an introduction into inheritance. Now, I want you to think about that with me. Thanksgiving is part of your American inheritance, passed down from generation to generation as a national reminder that our protection, provision, defense are gifts of God's grace from which we must turn them to honor God publicly and to count his many blessings and to share those blessings with others. And yet this week, we will watch as America allows the inheritance of Thanksgiving to slip away right along with freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, all the greatness of American inheritance. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, freedom are actively being stripped away by massive Americans for peace, safety, and security. Not from Almighty God, mind you, but from government. It is perfectly reasonable and necessary, then, when we understand the pagan culture to cancel its celebration of Thanksgiving in the name of safety and security for its citizens because it's the one who's providing it. It's odd for them to praise themselves. After all, to whom do pagans gather to give thanks? Any interesting question for Thanksgiving? Certainly not to the God of the Bible, not to the God referenced on the currency that we hold, not to the one God under whose nation we have become an American republic. As far as the new American inheritance, you don't have to worry about that. There is a new American inheritance being prepared for you. It is based off of all kinds of freedoms that can be given to you. Free health care, free immunization, free college, free abortion, free cell phones, free sterilization, a pollution-free environment, free cannabis brownies, free transgender story hour, designer babies, random sexualization. All of this requires higher taxation, long lines, empty shelves, and of course, no more clothes. Can you believe that you're watching the drastic transformation of the American inheritance in our lifetime? In less than 250 years, our American inheritance, liberty and freedom, purchased in the blood of millions of mere men, has been squandered in lives of decadence and apathy. Can we rally the troops and save the American inheritance of liberty and freedom for our kids? 
Can we change the tide of public opinion and usher in a generation that will pursue righteousness? Can we work hard enough to secure and assure our kids and grandkids the same American inheritance we've always known and loved? This is not a political rally. I'm just asking this question for you. You know, maybe you could do those things, but it's not likely. The real question is this, and this is where I want to provide step for this morning. The real question is this. What inheritance for your kids are you willing to pursue and at what cost? What inheritance are you willing to pursue for your kids and at what cost? You see, the problem with American inheritance is that it is not sealed. And it is not assured to any one of us. Not to mention liberty and freedom are impossible to share with wicked and sinful men. But spiritual inheritance in Christ achieves liberty and freedom, the likes of which you only know in the body of Christ. And they, liberty and freedom here, are sealed, supplying the greatest blessings of hope, peace, love, joy, comfort, and perseverance, which are continually delivered by the divine favor of God himself to the extent that wicked and sinful men and women like us can and must have relationships built on righteousness, and we do in the church to the honor and praise and thanksgiving of God Almighty. Which inheritance, brothers and sisters, do you choose? Because these inheritances necessarily are mutually exclusive. You don't want an unsealed, unsecure American inheritance. You want the blessing of inheritance sealed in Christ. This is where we're going this morning. Our inheritance is sealed in Christ, and it reveals God's richest provisions for us, while also harvesting a cornucopia of praise and thanksgiving from us. Praise is what God receives from Paul in Ephesians 1, where you turn now. We've been in Ephesians 1 for the last five weeks. We've been counting our blessings from Paul's 202-word blessing explosion in which Paul sings the glories of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit from eternity past to the present and on into eternity future. Rejoicing, Paul is, at God's total sovereignty to elect, adopt, and redeem a people for himself. We've been studying the blessings of God the loving love, Jesus' redeeming grace, and last week we saw the blessing of mystery revealed which we, we end our time in Paul's blessing explosion, looking at the blessing of an inheritance sealed. This is what we want, an inheritance sealed. And we will find it in the text in verses 11 through 14. 11 through 14. God has given us an inheritance of an inestimable worth. In Christ, in the church, in the spirit, an inheritance that is set for us for all of eternity. What makes our inheritance infinitely expensive? Predetermination, provision, and preservation. Predetermination, provision, and preservation. Paul explodes and exposes these three treasures of our inheritance's infinite worth that they result in our blessing, praise, and eternal thanksgiving of Almighty God. I'm going to say that again for you. That's where we're going this morning. Paul exposes these three treasures of our inheritance's infinite worth that they result in our blessing, praise, and eternal thanksgiving to Almighty God. Inheritance treasure number one is eternal. 
inheritance treasure number two is the effectual provision. And inheritance treasure number three is everlasting preservation. Now, I ran the risk of losing this morning in a political speech, and I wasn't going that direction at all, other than for this purpose, to set up a contrast between American inheritance and your spiritual inheritance. To draw this contrast to you and ask you the question, what do you want? With your life, what do you want? What can you expect? What should you long for? Where is your hope? And so in asking that question for you, I ask you also, as we think on Paul's blessing explosion, Pay attention. There's an incredible inheritance blessing sitting right here in the text for you. Smile. Rejoice. Be blessed, brothers and sisters. The world outside can crumble all around us all that it wants to. God has an incredible inheritance set for you now and for all eternity in heaven. So we're about to read eternal certainty and eternal security. Pinch yourself if you need to and give thanks to God because you must. That's what we're going to see in the text today. Read with me chapter 1, verse 33 through 14, as Paul launches into this blessing explosion. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Three times Paul hits that chorus again, to the praise of his glory. And this is where he has to end, to the praise of his glory. Paul is not about election, redemption, or where his hope and treasure lie in his inheritance. He is not confused. Rather, he is certain. He speaks with boldness and confidence given to him by God. And moreover, look at what they produce from Paul. They produce from him, as you see in the text, blessing, praise, thanksgiving to God. This is exactly what God wants. Churches filled with men and women of every age, color, creed, income, status, title, who know that salvation is from him, who identify as members of his son's church, and who worship him then in spirit and in truth. Understanding salvation on God's terms is not a secret. He's revealed it to us. And it is our blessing to understand and know these pieces of our salvation, our election, redemption, 
collection of inheritance here. Where do we find inheritance in the text? You see it in verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Inheritance. Inheritance is a direct result of the blessing of redemption. When you are bought out of the slave market of sin and redeemed from in Christ, you see in verse 7, you are forgiven of your sins, verse 7 as well, and you are given intelligence to understand the mystery of God's will, verse 8, and you are given an inheritance, verse 11. Inheritance is part of God's redemption package, his redemption meal in Christ, if you will, and inheritance is itself the dessert of redemption. It's a monstrous dessert. It's a full dessert. Cake, cookies, pie, ice cream, it's bigger than Thanksgiving. Inheritance is Paul's concluding thought in his blessing explosion. There's this fireworks crescendo that you would expect on the 4th of July happening here as Paul just unloads on us at the end of this blessing explosion. He goes into these four verses and he's unfolding some critical themes that have captured his mind as he's expressing these blessings. These critical themes, the Trinity. Time, past, present, future. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. The Father, Son, and Spirit you see in verses 11 through 14. And they also break up the major portions of this text. In addition, eternity, past, present, and future accompany each of the persons of the Trinity. Three times the gospel is described in this text. As well, two times we see praise and glory to God as he wraps up finishing about speaking about Christ, and turns this final conversation about our inheritance into a conversation about the Spirit's ability to deliver and preserve it, verses 1 and 2. Having read the text, the most basic question on your mind is, what is our inheritance? What is it? Well, you can look back at verse 3, we've already stated for you. Verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's your blessing. And I know, I know. You want specifics. You want the details. Okay. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says that God in his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. You like the sound of that inheritance? It seems like it's over there. You want it to come home more. Okay, okay, we'll bring it to come home, make it to come home that much more fully, okay? John MacArthur says inheritance is every promise God ever made, period. It's given to you as an inheritance. You have it now. Well, what does it look like? How does it manifest itself? Can you delineate its facets to me? They are these, John MacArthur says. You want them here, they are. Here's your inheritance that you have now. You have this incredible, unperishable, un undefiled inheritance out there in the future, but today you have peace in Christ. You have love, grace, wisdom, eternal life, joy, victory, strength, guidance, all of your needs met, power, knowledge, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, gifts of the Spirit, trouble, pain, suffering, those are in there too, fellowship with the Trinity, instruction from the Word of God, truth, spiritual discernment, heaven itself, a room in the Father's house, eternal riches, you name it, it's been supplied. That's what your inheritance is. And I would add to this list as well, your inheritance includes community, Bible, church. 
and all of the brothers and sisters and all the warmth of the fellowship and all the joy that comes from this place here, not to mention this place, but think of all the other places that you've been where you know you've ministered and worshiped alongside of brothers and sisters in Christ who loved you and trained you and instructed you and held you accountable to the word of Christ. <clears throat> These are relationships that are treasures to us now, though while we live, they give us a, a small fraction, a small taste of the abundant treasure in our inheritance set in heaven. They're very practical, and we like the practicality of the blessings that we have now. And what three treasures does Paul show us that reveal our inheritance is of infinite worth? It's of practical worth. What three treasures does Paul show us that reveal our inheritance is of infinite worth? This is what we're going to turn to our outline today. Outline point number one, inheritance treasure number one, eternal predetermination. Eternal predetermination. We're going to understand the blessings from God. We need to understand eternal predetermination. Your inheritance was set in God's mind before the world began. Let's look back at the text and see the infinite worth that comes from eternal predetermination. Verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. I mean, you can just stop right there with that word. Do you feel the weight of everything in this life lift off of your shoulders when I just said predetermined? This has all been decided by God. Let's, let's finish reading the text. I just got excited there for a second. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. The Greek has a challenge for us here in verse 11 which has to do with inheritance. Because inheritance means to choose, to be appointed by lot, or to obtain. And the verb can be rendered, we have an inheritance, or we are an inheritance. Either way you look at it, the verb is passive. Inheritance is happening to us. And certainly it is the case that we are God's inheritance. That's certainly the case. Romans 8.17 says that we are fellow heirs and joint heirs with Christ. And in his song in Deuteronomy 32.9, Moses says, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his, the allotment of his inheritance. And so we are God's inheritance, and yet Paul, his focus is on explaining our redemption and that it has a conclusion, it has a destination, it has some place to go to our inheritance. The meal of redemption, as I said, ends in a big dessert called inheritance. God appointed and chose us for this inheritance. When did God do that? He predetermined inheritance in eternity past. The book of life is not something that he's been filling out as we go along through life and he figures out who we are. We, we serve a big God. He, he already knew who we are. He already wrote the book of life. The Greek word here is proorizo, which means to predestine or decide beforehand. This word gets many well-meaning Christians hung up and it need not. Paul uses it twice here in Ephesians chapter 1 as he's explaining God's view of salvation in verses 5 and 11. Let me take you to another passage of scripture that will help explain the more fullness of this word pro or reason. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. Predetermination is not hard for us to grasp unless your mind just says, I don't want to. And an unregenerate mind doesn't want to. But if you're a believer and you're wrestling with this, I'm not calling you unregenerate, okay? I'm not saying that about you. What I'm saying is this is God's truth. It's made plain and clear. 
accept and receive the text in full and understanding it, that gives us great confidence and certainty. And that's what I want for you. Confidence and certainty in God's work, not in anything that has to do with your hands or some work that you completed. Because the basic question that comes up with predetermination is this. Is God in control or not? Is God omnipotent? Is he omniscient? Is he all-powerful? Is he fully in charge of everything? Or is he figuring this life out? Mankind hates the idea that God knows what we will do before we were even born. And yet the scriptures declare that idea over and over again. More importantly, God predetermined the most wicked event in human history. You know the event of which I speak. God predetermined the most wicked event in all of human history. Read with me from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, as Peter explains God's predetermination. Speaking to the Jews... In Jerusalem at Pentecost, in verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men catch that. Jesus was taken to the cross by his Father. That's what it says. Nothing is out of place. Peter says God delivered Jesus over to be executed. Where are you at with that? Where are you at with that? If God doesn't do that, is there redemption? Was redemption only a possibility? If redemption is only a possibility, then inheritance is only a possibility as well. And that's troubling for me. I need a God who can deliver an inheritance when he says he has one past tense. Can our eternal inheritance be lost? Is it a mere possibility? If God can't repurpose all unrighteousness and sin, then sin is bigger than God. But sin is not bigger than God. In fact, at the cross, God shows his ultimate power over sin. At the cross, we clearly see God's eternal thoughts are total genius. Nothing escapes the mind of God. All things have been predetermined. We are not living in chaos. We are being made patient and long-suffering like he is as the effects of sin are entirely overcome by God who actually redeems and actually supplies an eternal inheritance so omniscience and omnipotence is God that he uses the wickedness of sinful men like the Jews to accomplish his predetermined purposes. How do you like that for reviews and recycling? That's pretty environmentally friendly, right? Not only should you like eternal predetermination, you should love it. There is no other way for you to go from enemy of God to exalter of God. To go from rebel to redeemed except by eternal predetermination. But how? How does God change the hearts of the rebels? How is redemption and eternal predetermination applied? Well, after exposing inheritance treasure number one, eternal predetermination, Paul exposes the how of redemption and inheritance in verses 12 and 13 with inheritance treasure number two. The second one in your notes, inheritance treasure number two 
effectual provision. Effectual provision. You can read this in the text with me from verses 12 and 13. Effectual provision. There's a purpose clause here, a purpose statement in verse 12. Paul says, to the end, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay, with this passage, with this text, 12 and 13, out of the gate you should notice that there are two groups of people in these two verses. Paul is speaking of those who were first to hope in Christ. We, he says, we who were first to hope in Christ. And then he turns over and says, you also who believe. Why the division into the groups? Well, in a sense, Paul is foreshadowing the conversation he's going to pick up in chapter 2 about the division between Gentile and Jew that exists. Paul is very aware of his being Jewish and all that the Jews had to endure, even being the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross at the hands of godless men, which Peter speaks in Acts 17. He loves his country. He loves his countrymen. He understands the, the thresholds that they've gone through. Paul says in Romans that the advantages of being Jewish are great in many respects because it was the Jews to whom were entrusted all of the oracles of God, Romans 2.2. And yet, their knowledge didn't make them saved. You know, this is something that as a young child I really struggled with because the Bible would say that the Jews were God's chosen people. And I thought, well, if the Jews are God's chosen people, then they all just get rubber stamped and signed and sealed and they're all into heaven, but some of them live wicked lives. And how do we know which ones should be there and shouldn't be there? Is it all because they're Abraham's children? I just was confused as you read about this. No, that's not the case. You're not Israel just because you have lineage in Abraham. You're Israel if God has redeemed your heart like he redeemed Abraham's heart. There was something that was so troubling for me all this time, thinking that if you're in Israel, you're just in. You're not just in. God, God applied a salvation to Israel as a national salvation, but he has to apply a specific individual salvation for an individual to be in heaven. If they had been saved, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So then what brings salvation? What is able to save? What provision effectually redeems? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the title that I use. Paul uses three other titles for the gospel in verses 12 and 13. Can you pick them out? Three other titles for the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Jews, this is the message of hope in Christ. To the Gentiles, this is the message of truth and the gospel of your salvation. It's the same gospel for both parties, which effectually provides salvation to all who hear and believe. For this gospel is the righteousness of God and the salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no separate gospel for you based on color, creed, sex, age, the amount of sin or not sin that you've committed in this life. All can be redeemed by this gospel. And yet, it is not as if you were out hunting and seeking this gospel down. The Jews certainly were not. This gospel dropped right in their lap and happened right in front of their face. And they didn't believe it. And the Gentiles, they couldn't care any less. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. So how is the effectual provision of the gospel applied? How is redemption accomplished for these two groups, the Jew and the Gentile? How do you get an enemy of God to hope and believe the foolishness? 
through the Spirit, through God drawing men unto himself, through God calling men and women to hear the word, to hear the word the preacher delivers, which is the gospel of salvation, and then the Spirit convicts of sin. Romans 10, 14 says, how will they hear without a preacher? Verse 17 of Romans 10 says, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The gospel preached is the vehicle driven by the Holy Spirit into the hearts and minds of unsuspecting enemies of God who are powerless to stop it and overpowered by its grace, love, and mercy. The Holy Spirit is the greatest promoter of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the greatest heartbreaker the world has ever known because that's what it takes to be saved, a broken heart. And he's the one who takes that gospel message, drives it into the heart, and breaks that heart. He's the ultimate effectual provision behind the saving of the gospel, the person of the Holy Spirit. Read with me in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 39. 36 to 39. Peter says, in concluding his message here, he says, therefore, to these Jews on the day of Pentecost, he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And someone will say to me, Oliver, this says the Holy Spirit shows up last in salvation. See? No, friend. No, that's not how it works. The Holy Spirit showed up during the preaching, and the effect was felt in chapter 2, verse 37, with the words, they were pierced to the heart. And when they are heartbroken over sin is when the preacher calls for repentance, because there's absolutely an active and participatory aspect to your salvation. Turn back to Ephesians 1. Let's talk about the active and participatory aspect of salvation. The gospel message is always driven to the mind and to the heart by the Holy Spirit with the result that the redeemed burst forth in repentance, hope, and belief, and praise in Christ. You're in chapter 1, verse 12 of Ephesians. You see this as we talked about before. The Jews burst forth with hope in verse 12. That's active hope. They're doing that. That hope is something that they know that they're doing. In verse 13, you Gentile Ephesians, Paul says, you listen. That's active. And you also actively believe. Active hope, active listening, active believing. Our salvation is absolutely participatory. It is unquestionably kicked off and started by the Holy Spirit. We're dead. As dead as a car sitting out here in winter with a dead battery. What does it take to start that car? Well, at that point, a new battery, but it takes a key. And the Holy Spirit is the battery and the key. He's everything that you need. Friend, what is actively happening in your mind as you hear the message? What response do you have to a God who redeems out of slavery to sin and supplies an imperishable inheritance? Are you drawn to this message? Do you need forgiveness and assurance of something better than this world has to offer you today? I can only imagine that you do, because
and the possession we have to offer is the gospel of Jesus Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit to get the right into your mind and make sense of your life and your sin and causes you to think about your sin that you that you repent and confess that there is only one way there is only one truth and that is your way through Jesus Christ the best inheritance this world has ever known is the gospel of Jesus Christ being driven to the hearts and minds by the person of the Holy Spirit redemption is certain is certain when applied by the Holy Spirit of God because he seals you into an eternal relationship with Christ. And we see this as the last inheritance treasure of our morning. The last inheritance treasure of our morning is number three, everlasting preservation. Everlasting preservation. He who begins a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's so much certainty and hope in the message that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. How much staying power do you think that there is in our society with mask wearing? Do you think that masks are up there for the ill for humanity? How much salvation is there in the masks? Are they keepers for our society? What about calls paid for by the government? Do you think that's a program that will last forever? Is that what all societies will ever have done? What about America? Is America the only country in the history of the world that after rising to incredible prominence would not suffer the fall of her own pride? Has God given America everlasting preservation? Not at all. But he has given everlasting preservation to us individually in salvation through Christ. And what a beautiful thing also because when he takes us individually and saves us, he gathers us physically into his church, into what we share together. We have gifts of our inheritance and proof of a redemption that is present in the saints. Read with me again from verses 13 and 14, and let's consider how the redemption and inheritance offered in the gospel are guaranteed forever and guaranteed in a person. Verse 13, having also believed, Paul says, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Boy, that's part of the message from Paul this morning in closing. Say hello to the Holy Spirit. Here he is. He is a person worth knowing, the third person of the Trinity. He is filled with intellect, emotion, and will. Those are identified with personhood. Don't grieve him. Don't grieve the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 30 will tell you in Ephesians. Paul will say that later to us. He's the one who guides you into all truth. That's what Jesus told the disciples in John 16, 13. The Holy Spirit is the one who will guide you into all truth. What does this passage here in Ephesians, verse 13 and 14, what does it teach us about the Holy Spirit and our inheritance? And specifically, what do we learn about everlasting preservation because of him? That's what you need to see. Everlasting Documents of great importance get a seal of authenticity. 
The seal is the stamp or the mark or the imprint that declares the document's source, identity, or even its authority. It doesn't have to be a document. You can do this to other things as well. Large organizations use a seal. Presidents use a seal. Kings use a seal, a stamp. Cattle, even themselves, cattle, animals, are branded by their owners with a seal, creating a mark of ownership. That's what we're talking about, a seal, is a mark of ownership. God has a seal, and the seal is the person of the Holy Spirit meant to live inside your heart. God's redeemed, all the believers, have a certain inheritance because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And maybe this is news to you. But it shouldn't be. The promise of the Holy Spirit of God living inside God's people goes way back, which takes us to the second strength of, of the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit of promise. I want to turn back to Acts chapter 2 with you again. Go back to Acts 2 again. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples on that night of glory. While you turn to Acts 2, I want to share with you Jesus' words as we set the context for the Spirit being one who's promised. On the night of glory, Jesus says to his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. How is that for a promise from Christ? That the Holy Spirit would come and be with you and in you. And yet Jesus' promise goes to confirm the promises made by God for all time. You're in Acts chapter 2. Again, we're looking at Peter's sermon. Remember, this sermon is in response to the Holy Spirit coming upon all those gathered in Christ's name in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Read with me from chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, as Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2. What does Peter say here? Verse 14, Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raising his voice and declared to them, men of Judea, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my word, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on men, all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your sons, your young men shall see visions, and your older men shall dream dreams, even on my bond's sake, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit was eternally predetermined and effectually provided. He is, or he was, promised in the mind of God from eternity past to dwell in us. He seals us to God and to Christ the same way that a down payment on a house seals the purchase for the buyer, which takes us to the third strength of the Holy Spirit. The third strength of the Holy Spirit. He is God's down payment to us. He's God's down payment to us, who lives inside of us. He's our down payment of our unimaginable inheritance. The Greek word here is erabon. Erabon, in your translations, it's translated pledge, guarantee, deposit, earnest. Today in Greece, the word erabon means engagement ring. As an engagement ring, what does that tell us is coming in the future? A wedding. The full fulfillment of the promise made. There's a wedding yet to happen in our future when we are united with God and Christ together in heaven forever. The indwelling Holy Spirit is proof positive of both a redemption that has happened and a greater redemption yet to come. He, the Holy Spirit, is 
know God's will, bring praise to God, and will certainly be brought into the glory of God when we, where we will dwell with him forever. Our eternal preservation is tied directly to the promise, seal, and down payment of the Holy Spirit who is living in us as proof of our redemption and our eternal inheritance. Beloved, these are the treasures of our infinite inheritance, eternal predetermination by God, effectual provision through the gospel of Christ and the Holy Spirit, and everlasting preservation accomplished by the sealing Holy Spirit. Our redemption and inheritance are the height of God's grand purpose arrived at in his eternal counsel of his will, bringing the greatest glory for himself, his spirit, and his son. What do we say to these treasures of infinite inheritance? What do we say to them? Number one, we say this. Let the first two words out of your mouth, when you, when you, read, when you realize what has gone on here, when you read the text of Ephesians, and, and when your mind is racked with two words, in the form of a
and with you the Father, are privileged. Many.